The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I demand an explanation for the death of that boy. I'm responsible for thousands of patients. You'll have to be more specific. His name was Tebis. Patient R12. Acute chromoviral disease. The patient had exceeded his medication allotment. It seems someone had given him unauthorized injections. You're not just rationing health care here. You're getting rid of the sick and the weak. If the boy had been fit, he would have survived. Why don't you just put a phaser to their heads? We're healers, not killers. Please, don't make them suffer for my mistakes. It won't happen again. I'm making certain of that. From now on, your time will be strictly regulated. Meaning what? I've interfaced your holomatrix with the allocator. Starting now, it will determine where you go, when you go, and what you do when you get there. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, September 3rd, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show again today where the number is, as always, 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation today. You can email us with your comments, opinions, and perhaps even requests for topics you might like to hear discussed at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And of course, you can visit our archives of all our past shows from the very first one to today's show at justrightmedia.com. Org, triple W, of course. Now, today, our theme is going to be once again about health care. This time, I'm going to be focusing on the debate that just occurred over the month of August south of the border. And boy, what a set of, um, shall we say, debates they were. I can't really call them a debate. They were more like public opinion sessions since a debate would, uh, you'd think that the result of a debate would actually affect the outcome. I don't think that that's what's going to happen here at all. Another thing I must say as as sort of a prequel to this, because I'm not going to get into it, and, you know, the whole debate is not really about health care, nor is it really about insurance, although it's constantly dressed in that garb. It's really about a free medical service plan. End of story. Free. Free for all, basically. And uh, that's not even conceptually insurance by any means, which is generally meant to cover those catastrophic events in your life and not the routine. And of course, what uh, is going on south of the border is what is already happening here north of the border. Uh, you know, the U.S. healthcare debate is like watching a train wreck in slow motion. And the train's already been derailed, and the two sides of the debate, and in this case, the two sides I'm referring to are Republican and Democrat, are pondering which side of the track the train will eventually crash on and never really arriving at any sort of conclusion. Some even believe they can get the train back on the track, even after its wheels are no longer in contact with those strict and unalterable direction that those tracks would force the train, you know, to follow. In fact, you know, keeping the train off the track, careening around without a direction or destination since it cannot be steered, and will simply follow the path of least resistance, that is actually what our so-called healthcare reformers actually want as a permanent condition. Uh, 
All that becomes important is that as many people as possible can hop on that train, and whether it actually ever reaches its destination or not is besides the point. Now, if you've been paying attention, you know that the train I'm talking about is government-run health care, that the track is a fiscally sound and actuarially accurate economic base, and the destination is the well-being or health of a given individual passenger on that train. That's the symbolic image I just can't shake whenever I take a look at the healthcare debate as it is being discussed by uh, politicians. And although many in the general public are in the same philosophic camp as the politicians, what has actually surprised me in the American debate, really, is how many members of the public have actually escaped all that hype and are really thinking for themselves. And they have found themselves under criticism. Now, today, today's show, this is actually the second in a, in a series of full shows that I promised to do on the uh, oh-so-critical issue of government health care. Um, the first show we started, and I've talked about healthcare before, but not for a complete show, and I've discussed other areas of healthcare, and I'm trying not to repeat those areas uh, except where necessary with each progressive installment, shall we say. So, you know, the first installment of this was we just did it August 13th, just three weeks ago. On that day, we talked about uh, the various states of health, uh, states being Canada, the United States, and Europe, and a few other spots. We looked at healthcare horror stories here at home in Canada. Um, we looked at Canadian and American Medicare, the problems with both of them, and how both Americans and Canadians are suffering doctor shortages, and many uh, patients from each country are going to, of all places, India for, for surgery and serious uh, health ailment issues. And we talked about some healthcare cures that are worse than the disease, which you kind of can't get away from since that's a lot of what the whole debate is about. Now, you know, I think that the word fascism is an ugly thing and is an offense. It's offensive to the core. And, you know, while many on the left would agree with that assessment, the problem is they are loath to hear anyone identify fascism that's sitting in their midst. And I think it's the left's shock at the incredible opposition to state-run health insurance that has sent it into a tailspin of misdirected denial, um, evasion, and ridicule. And those three things that's denial, evasion, and ridicule, have seemed to become the main weapons of the left, uh, who seems to remain ignorant on everything from history to economics, because that seems to nurture the core of their very coercive ideologies. America's Medicare debate could use a tranquilizer, writes John Kastner in the London Free Press editorial on September 1st uh, of this year. You may want to make fun of yourselves all you want, former American President Bill Clinton said Saturday in Toronto, but there are many people who would kill to live in, environ in an environment like this, end quote. And uh, John Kastner writes, he said, that is obviously a view not shared by all Americans as our neighbors are embroiled in a debate over public health care that has not only polarized the United States, but has turned divisive, ugly, and at times even vicious. To Canadians who accept and expect universal health care as a way of life, we find the tone of the American debate and the predictions of Armageddon remarkable. Now, end quote for a second. You know, I think the reason is that's because Canadians don't debate. This, this country 
only offers a monologue on health care, not a dialogue. And no one's got any choice in the matter anyway, so what is there to debate? It's not like we're still making our choice. Americans still have a choice in health care, which they will lose forever if they you know, bite on this Obamacare deal. So, but to continue with this editorial, quote, a point often missing is that the U.S. government spends more per capita on health care than we do in Canada, yet there are millions without coverage, end quote. Now, Actually, this point is never missed in any of the arguments I've seen in favor of state health insurance. It's repeated ad nauseum over and over and over and over again, and yet it's an utterly meaningless point, coupled with a non sequitur. Uh, What does that mean? Okay, the U.S. government spends more on each patient than we do. Well, isn't that a good thing? No, we want our government to do? Aren't we all saying, well, I'd rather the government spent X dollars on health care than on, say, the Pan Am Games? You know what I'm saying? And uh, yet, that's considered a bad thing for something, for, for some reason. Then they add, and yet there are millions without coverage, which has absolutely nothing to do with the first thing. There are two unrelated points that don't mean anything. But never mind that. Here's what the editorialist thinks. Quote, one would think that alone would prompt health care reform, but apparently not. So what's the problem? Someone needs to tell Americans that if you adopt a universal health care system, and even if it works pretty well, you can still complain about it, end quote. You know, I'm just sitting there reading that and I go, huh? <laughs> Not only is that last sentence alarmingly cold-hearted and elitist, but this is one of the most intellectually and morally evasive editorials I've run across in a long time. It's just utterly mindless. And yet, it is indicative of the entire argument offered by the left from, from Obama on downward, and we're going to be hearing some of that later on. Um, if you can't debate the issue, then debate the debate. You know, that's what the left is doing right now. Call your opposition crazy. Call them divisive. Call them ugly. Call them vicious. But don't ever dare broach the issues that those divisive, ugly, vicious people have forced into the public arena. By gosh, you don't want to do that. Don't ever try to address their concerns. I never heard a single person answer any of these people, including any of the politicians. They just, you know, talk around it. Yes, thank you for coming out and giving us your opinions, Mr. So-and-so. Isn't it nice that we're having a democratic debate? And blah, 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 Uh, (laughs) which it's not about at all. So small wonder that so many people are forced to resort to the symbolism of intolerance in an attempt to have their voices heard. And when they do that, the left brands them all as, you know, nut bars and Nazi baiters and once again avoids reality and avoids the debate at the same time. Here's one from the National Post, August 11th. uh, Faithful flock to Obama's health plan uh, by Ed Stoddart, August 11th. uh, And byline says, religious left throws weight behind reform. And this is a news story out of Dallas, and it reads, Liberal religious groups announced yesterday they are throwing their weight behind Barack Obama in a campaign to counter the surprisingly vehement conservative opposition to the U.S. president's plan to overhaul the health care industry. As a pastor, I believe access to health care is a profoundly moral issue, Reverend Stevie Wakes of Olivet Institutional Baptist Church in Kansas City said in a news conference, announcing the, quote, 40 days for health reform, end quote, campaign. I think the Democrats were surprised by the strength of the religious right and the insurance companies and those opposed to health care reform when they got their grassroots efforts going, said Cal Gilson, a political scientist at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. The White House has launched a new online reality check featuring administration officials rebutting critics' claims, end quote. 
So I guess uh, now it's become uh, you know official denials of what will happen, and that's really what the whole situation is about. You know, so many people think that you can you know have perpetual motion, have perpetual energy, not have to work for things, and you can rob Peter to pay Paul forever, and. In the process, they always look at the rosy side of things and say, yeah, this is how it could be, but they always deny the inevitable outcome of things. And that's really the problem. And there's a fundamental misunderstanding of democracy, basically. Confusing the democratic debate, when, when you have two sides talking about an issue, with the, with the act of what they're debating. Is it democratic, for example, for 10 people to get together to decide to kill three other people? Is that democracy? It would be by this definition, by what they're doing, because democracy has to be limited by things that are known as people's individual rights. And that's how you protect the smallest minority called the individual. And if you have the right to life and to your liberty and to your property, no one else has a right to any of those three things. Socialized health care destroys all three of those rights and must violate them. So for people to get together and say, we're going to have a democratic conversation about robbing our friends and neighbors, that's not democracy. That's looting. That's theft. You know, it's, it might be legal. You can make it legal. Of course we make these things legal. That's what politics is all about, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Going to take a quick break for a quick smile. I think we could use one. And we'll come back and we'll talk about debating the debate and what's going on south of the border. I'll tell you why I just got out of the hospital, which, as many of you know, is not a very pleasant experience. You know how it is. You're naked half the time. Everybody's got their hands all over you. I had this one fellow examine me. He's like, does this hurt right there? What about right now? Does that cause you pain right in there? What about right now? Do you feel that right in there, buddy? What about this? You like where this is going, buddy? Is that okay right there? You like that? And I'm just lying here, right? I'm like, buddy? If you don't get back into your bed, I'm calling the doctor, okay? Because this is, this is just too much here. And have you ever seen anything like this in all of your years of public service? Never where people have been encouraged to be disrespectful. Democrats charge the people shouting health care questions at members of Congress these days are being encouraged by the likes of Rush Limbaugh, whose website compares reform supporters to Nazis. But Corey Lewandowski with Americans for Prosperity, a conservative group that's backing the protests, insists the anti-reform movement is real. How do you respond to the charge that this is all orchestrated and artificial if it's if it's all coming from talk show hosts and websites I, I think if that were the case then you wouldn't see the massive turnouts that you're seeing at each and every event I mean you know the average person is at work when Rush Limbaugh's on the radio as we were talking almost out of nowhere a bystander listening in on our conversation came right up to us to say ditto thank you very much and you happen to agree with this gentleman I do. <laughs> but Democrats are also flexing their grassroots these former Obama volunteers were back in campaign mode I really think you've got some folks who are very anxious about change who really love to play the fear card Corey Lewandowski says it's about facts not fear but time and again he falsely compared democratic health care proposals to a Canadian style universal system 
the ones coming out of the house are not Canadian-style universal health care. And you know that. Universal health care in any way, shape, or form is a bad notion. And that was from on August 11th, CNN uh, live broadcast uh, that I took on the whole uh, health care debate south of the border. And, of course, there they're debating the debate. And uh, you notice how carefully they, uh, you know, I thought Canada was supposed to have the health care system to be emulated, and yet in a debate south of the border, everyone's going out of their way to make sure that our system is not the one that Americans are going to get. So what is it they're so afraid of? You know, this, this, despite all the assurances that X, um, you know, won't happen, for example, abortions won't be paid for, illegal aliens won't be covered, private insurance will not be affected, personal health care will improve, you know, despite all those assurances that that's not part of the current health care plan proposal, this belief simply denies a fundamental principle of causality. You know, you drop the ball, it starts to roll, it's going to go in a certain direction, nothing you can do to stop it. They, they therefore believe that rationing can be avoided, you know, when it never can, even though that's an impossibility. They believe they can avoid increasing deficits, even though that's an impossibility. And even if they raise taxes through the roof, they'd still have to increase deficits, which they will do in some way, shape, or form. They already have set new records on deficit spending. So you have this denial... And you have this belief, you add that to the denial, that the U.S. can escape all of the negative effects experienced within its own borders. I mean, they've already got nightmare stories with Medicare and, uh, you know, issues with other nations. Um, you know, it's just that denial and that belief are both fundamental to the so-called health care reformers. And I keep saying so-called because health care is not being reformed in any way, shape, or form, neither here nor south of the border. It is gradually being monopolized by the state. And it's just done one step at a time, and it started a long time ago. We'll get into that a little bit later. Then there's this issue of, well, we're, we're not going to be like Canada. We're not going to have socialized medicine. We're going to have private options and private choice, and the government will get into partnerships and blah, 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 blah. Uh, <laughs> there is no such thing as a public-private partnership. This is a complete fallacy. It's a fiction. To say that you will allow private practitioners and private insurance companies to continue to operate while government dictates the services, the prices, and the conditions that those private quote-unquote companies must adhere to, how is that any different from the government running the whole thing in the first place? State control of private enterprise and of private choice has a very explicit name and there's no other word for it. Check your dictionary. What's the word? It's fascism. There is simply no other word in a dictionary to describe this political relationship. And yet you see the left falling over themselves to, deno to deny, A, that that's what's going on, and B, that anybody who tells them what's going on, that that, oh, no, that doesn't mean the things that fascism meant. Of course it does. My goodness. Pick up a history book. You know, to say that an economic activity is private means to remove it from the realm of government entirely, a separation of economics and the state, which is the definition of capitalism. Private property is a valid concept only in a capitalist economy. Private property is incompatible with any form of collectivism, be it socialism, fascism, communism. You just add all the isms you want. This is one of the political realities that the left continually denies, in addition to the actual reality it denies, and that fascism is both the means and the objective of all the advocates of increased government intervention in the economy. And so, they dismiss and they make fun of anybody who strikes at the true heart of the issue. 
as some kind of Nazi-baiting alarmist who's exaggerating his case to the point of ad nauseum. Therefore, anyone using any of the symbols of fascism in the healthcare debate is just a kook. Hitlerian mustaches and swastikas, hey, they're supposed to be offensive. That's the point. And so is fascism. But if it's politically incorrect to criticize fascism by using fascist symbols to illustrate the offensiveness of government-run health care, then you're no longer a free citizen. Come on. Why are they even talking like that? You ever, remember, it's been a theme on this show for three years, how the left always wants to avoid a debate. They're just not in on the debate at all. Democrats, you know, they call this, you know, being encouraged to be disrespectful when you use symbols like fascism and, you know, Hitlerian mustaches and stuff. Uh, and you heard that in the last audio excerpt. You know, they're wanting to deprive you of your choice or steal your money for their choice is apparently not being disrespectful in any way. No way. And uh, apparently calling a thief a thief has become disrespectful, if that's how they're going to think about it. Democrats say it's about fact, not fear, saying that their universal health care system will not be like the Canadian universal health care system. But none of that will change the inevitable outcomes, given the path that America has been on for quite some time now. Which brings me to this, uh, again, I've referred to this essay many times. This was written in 1962. I'm going to read a different part of it today as a su special supplement to the Objectivist, Objectivist newsletter and was written by Dr. Leonard Peikoff in June of 62. Now, I quoted a passage from this last time, and, and this was written only weeks before Canada's first socialized medicine system took effect in Saskatchewan on July 1st of that year. Now, in responding to the then Kennedy administration's King Anderson bill, which would finance health care for the aged with taxes collected through the federal social security system, Leonard Peikoff wrote this. And remember, this is June 1962, and I quote, Nobody, nobody bothers much anymore to deny that this is only a first step. There is no principle by which the state can claim to be responsible for the hospital expenses of the aged, but not for their doctor's bills or for the costs of those under 65 with chronic diseases, or for the psychiatric expenses of those in their mental institutions, or for the dental expenses of the unemployed, or ultimately for everyone's medical expenses. The statists in both the United States and Canada seek to counter the protests of the medical profession by claiming that government-financed medicine is compatible with perfect freedom for the doctors. Said Secretary Ribikoff, quote, it should be absolutely no concern to a physician where a patient gets the money, end quote. The truth is that it is a matter of life and death concern. He who pays the money for a service is morally obligated to see that he receives full value in return. He must set the terms, conditions, and standards govern governing his expenditures. If he does not, he's an irresponsible wastrel. If it is the government that does the paying then the government has to decide who is qualified to receive its money, how much a particular service is worth, under what conditions that service is necessary, and under what conditions it is merely squandering of state funds. Whether a controversial new surgical technique or a controversial drug or a controversial method of psychotherapy is a failure which should not be supported or a success which deserves the taxpayer's money. Just like the clip we heard at the opening of the show out of uh, Star Trek Voyager. But, continues Peikoff, in a free society, a man cannot force his terms on others. Those who dissent are free to deal elsewhere. 
Now, just to break here, you know, that is also a demonstration of the capitalist principle of separating economics and the state. That's what it means. If you don't want to do business with somebody, you can go do business with somebody else or not do business. And nobody will come and put you in jail. So that's all that means. But continues um, Peacock, quote, a patient who disapproves of a doctor's method of treatment can seek out another doctor. A doctor who considers a patient's demands irrational is not compelled to give in to them. And in the long run, it is the best and ablest doctors, those who achieve the cures and demonstrate their value that rise to the top and set the example for the rest of the profession. But when the government sets the terms, they are enforced by the police power of the state. The standards of the government become the laws of the country, and no others are legally permitted. Should any doctor object to the decrees of the officials who staff the state health board? Should he attempt to act on his own best judgment and make an unauthorized use of the drugs? The hospital beds, the operating rooms being paid for by the state, he therefore becomes a criminal, and he is legally subject to retribution, to loss of license or fine or jail sentence. There is no one to whom he can turn. The government is his sole employer. He either submits or he leaves medicine or he escapes from the country. The proposal to pay medical expenses with state funds has only one meaning. It is a proposal to enslave the doctors. That there may be medical men on the state health board changes nothing. There are undoubtedly journalists in the bureau which controls the press in Soviet Russia. This does not make the editors of Pravda free men. By what moral principles are the doctors to be deprived of their right to practice their profession as free men? By the principle of altruism, the principle that man is a sacrificial animal, that the only justification of his existence is the service he renders to others, and that any consideration or concern for the men who provide the service is irrelevant. This is too important a matter, declared Saskatchewan Premier Lloyd in an explanation of his refusal to drop his plan, quote, to leave the decision to a relatively small group who have power because they have special skills, end quote. Thus, the men with invaluable skills are to have no say in the matter because they have, and they are to have no say because they are men with invaluable skills. When altruism reaches so corrupt a stage, its full meaning comes out into the open. The emphasis changes from love to obedience, from handouts to handcuffs, from the welfare state to the police state. And how true that is. And that's the process. That was written in 1962, end quote, by um, Leonard Peikoff and uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff of philosophy, not, although I understand he had many medical doctors in his family. Now, coming up next, we're just getting near to the bottom of the hour, and we're going to go away for a few break and, and moments here. But just before that, um, I was fortunate. Well, I was, I was ill a couple of weeks ago. That's why I missed one of the shows here on the air. And, I, and it was almost fortunate I was because I got to uh, spend a lot of that week watching these debates south of the border. Left my VCRs running on the day they did all the live debates and captured, oh my goodness, about eight, nine hours of, of uh, just fascinating debates. I found them fascinating because a lot of the citizens actually had some very interesting things to say. And... Um, so we've got some clips from that. Now, here's the first one you're going to hear. This is from, um, again, August 11th, and I got all these off the live broadcast before they went through them and, you know, re-edit them and cut them and do all that sort of stuff. So these were right out of the live broadcast, though I, I had to edit them myself because, we, I, you know, cut out a lot of the jeering and cheering, and I did not focus 
on a lot of the altercations and little, uh, you know, I want to speak and the, the kind of things that the media, just those superficial things they look at. I tried to stick to the people who I think had something very important to say. So for the next few minutes, we'll listen to that and we'll hear it again coming back out of the break. And on the other side, we'll continue with our theme today. Uh, President Obama stated more than once his goal is to have a single-payer system. Are you for a single-payer system, and will you vote for a bill that would make a single-payer system either through the bill or in the future? I'm prepared to keep single-payer on the table as a matter of consideration and flexibility. I believe, I believe that when we're in the formative stage of figuring out what to do, that we ought to consider every option. And we ought to hear the people out. I know the public opinion polls are high in favor of single payer. I know that. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I, I guess you can get a poll about any way you want it. Senator, thanks for being here today. I appreciate that. I reviewed 3,200 best I could. To me, it is obviously written with the assumption that government has the right to control our lives from pre-birth to death. For that reason, it's not worth considering, it's not worth modifying, it's not worth amending. It needs to be dumped totally. I believe the polls show that most people are happy with their health care. There's a few problems. The illegals. They shouldn't even be here. Let alone I would ask Congress to do something to send them home so we don't have to deal with that. There are people who don't want to pay for coverage. Then let them pay for the service when they get the service. We shouldn't have to provide for that. There are some people who are both evidently, they would like to have care, they're unable. President Bush used to say, help those who can't help themselves. Let's focus on those minor problems. Let's focus on tort reform. Let's focus on helping people carry their coverage over to a new job. But leave us alone. That's all we would ask. Would you leave us alone? I would like to ask you today if you would commit to working on those problems rather than throwing everything into turmoil. That would be my request. Well, I, uh, would, I, would I commit to working on those problems and not throwing everything into turmoil? That's a pretty generalized statement that I can agree with. Thank you. Um, I am a Republican. But I am, first and foremost, I'm a conservative. I don't believe this is just about health care. It's not about TARP. It's not about left and right. This is about the systematic dismantling of this country. I'm only 35 years old. I have never been interested in politics. You have awakened the sleeping giant. We are tired of this. This is why everybody in this room is so ticked off. I don't want this country turning into Russia, turning into a socialized country. My question for you is... (laughs) 
What are you going to do to restore this country back to what our founders created according to the Constitution? that I am not, I'm in opposition of this health care. The government hasn't done anything right. One of our uh, Pennsylvanians last week asked you the question with the, with the results from Social Security, bankrupt, Medicare, bankrupt, Medicaid, bankrupt. You're taking our kids' future and <laughs> post office and taking our kids' future and driving it right into the toilet. We cannot afford this, period. Keep the government out of it. We're doing just fine. Thank you, sir. I want to tell you, uh, Senator, that I have spent two weeks on my own trying to read that bill and trying to understand it. It's like a Russian novel. And yet in the bill itself, it says many times the requirement for plain language, and I can cite you the pages and the line numbers because I've had it up on the computer. It's very difficult to understand. Very difficult. This is the most important bill in my lifetime. And my granddaughter will pay for this bill in its present form, whatever form that is, in terms of 30, H.R. 3200. I have three very important concerns that I think are shared. One is, Obama talks about $600 billion. The Congressional Budget Office talks about $1.1 trillion. I have spent 40 years in government, and I've never seen a program come in at the right price and stay at that price. I just have one other thing. I have spent 35 years in information technology. I've read this bill very closely. You are about to concentrate more information about more Pennsylvanians and Americans in this bill in one place in the computers of Washington that has ever occurred. In fact, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, says it gives you the right to enter using, so, uh, using, using our internal revenue service. And page 58 talks about entering our, our own accounts, our own, because financial responsibility has to be uh, ascertained. My final comment is this. Massachusetts has tried something like this. Tennessee has tried something like this. Why don't we take a look at what has worked and what has failed there and maybe start it in a blue state. Give it all we've got in one state, but don't concentrate all this power in the bureaucrats and their computers in Washington. You'll be gone. By God, the bureaucrats will still be there. We don't know their names, we don't know their faces, but they'll be making our decisions for us and for my children. Well, let me... Uh...
And welcome back. Um, I didn't mention that was, of course, uh, Senator Arlen Specter's debates that were held on that day. And he, of course, was uh, the senator turned Democrat from being former Republican, which a lot of people were questioning as well. Some very, very uh, telling opinions expressed by the people in attendance. By the way, when we were uh, just in the break there, I know we had a caller trying to get through who just happened to ask about monetary policy and how it might reflect on health care. Monetary policy is worth a whole show in and of itself, but Briefly, it affects everything the same way. If uh, you're printing more cash than uh, the number of goods you're chasing, essentially, um, you're going to cause inflation. And that's what's been going on dramatically in the, in the United States right now. And it's one of the things that's not even being accounted for. As I say, there's so many dimensions to the whole health care issue. Uh, each one, you could spend hours on them. <clears throat> So, uh, and I intend to do that over over the time, but boy, of all the uh, issues we could be looking at, this one is not black and white on the face of it, except for the simple morality of it. You know, you, we just got to stop this Robin Peter to pay Paul. Now, uh, far from a healthy debate, reads the headline in the National Post uh, by Tom Blackwell, all hell breaks loose as Obama pushes care, uh, care reform. And um, he writes here in that article, quote, for weeks, Democratic politicians consulting their constituents about the president's health reform push have faced angry, shoving crowds complaining that a plan to bring about universal medical coverage was tantamount to communism or fascism or even racism. Analysts say vociferous opposition springs out of an American psyche that is wary of government and prizes personal freedom and responsibility, a mindset already rattled by the string of bailouts. James Morone, a, a Brown University political scientist with ties to the Obama White House, says the current battle should come as no surprise. Given that 10 presidents, from Roosevelt to Nixon, have confidently set out to introduce national health care, and every one of them failed. What has brought the issue to the fore again is as much the system's cost as the morality of all those uninsured. The United States spends 15% of its GDP on health, almost twice Canada's level, and well above that of any other industrialized nation, fueling the federal deficit and burdening industry. And there again, you see, there's that thing that the other editorial writers said no, nobody ever talks about, that they spend more than we do. They always mention that. And the article continues, And yet experts say many Americans reject the notion they have a moral obligation to ensure that everyone gets decent care without going bankrupt. Says one respondent in a focus group, You're telling us that if I can only afford a Volkswagen and my neighbor can afford a Mercedes, I should get the Mer Mercedes too, just because? <laughs> End quote. Even strong advocates of reform say the administration must appeal more to self-interest. How change can aid the already insured middle class than to altruism to sell the idea. End quote. Now, interesting that they, you know, well, we have to sell to self-interest, which, of course, is what's driving the whole thing anyway. Altruism is, is just inverted self-interest. And, uh, you know, the thing is, why doesn't every, anyone ever suggest, uh, you know, morality or justice? If they say the issue is about morality, why not come to a conclusion based on that? <laughs> I wonder. The National Post goes on to list the following proposed changes to America's health care system under the Obama proposals. Number one, and this is one you don't hear about, the requirement that all Americans must have health insurance. Now think about what that means. This means forcing everyone to have health insurance. That means that not having health insurance will therefore have to become a crime. 
That means being caught in public without your health care ID would be cause for arrest and detainment. It'd be like being caught driving without having a driver's license. And if everyone is forced to have health insurance, then why bother with any administration at all? Why bother with any talk of competition or choice or premiums or insurance? Why not just have the government pay for anybody who walks into a hospital at any time and just pay for all of it out of taxes? And this way you don't even have to force a single individual to buy anything. If 100% of the people have to be legally insured, then why bother with insurance premiums at all and give everybody the same coverage? That's pretty much where Canada, you know, in particular Ontario is today, and that is called socialism, but that's not where Obama wants to go, and he thinks he can stay away from it. But Obama quite correctly insists that what he's advocating is not a Canadian-style Medicare system, because what he's advocating is an American-style, a fascist system, one that forces the cost of the system onto private entities, from the individuals who must be forced to buy health insurance, to businesses, to employers, and thus, that's how he's going to bypass the need to increase taxes. Just don't call it a tax. Call it a health care premium. And call it private. <laughs> Boy. And here's number two. Provide subsidies for the poor to buy insurance and expand Medicaid. Well, that means more taxes and more debt. Number three. Require employers to make some kind of contribution to the cost of workers' coverage. Again, more fascism again, forcing the private sector to pay for government force programs that someone else, a third party, benefits. Uh, another, another one, set up new insurance exchanges or marketplaces where people could choose between different prices and benefits. Well, that's total intervention in the marketplace, and that also is called a particular, particular name, fascism. <laughs> I, if you've if you got a better word for this, you call me up and tell me what it is. Mandate a minimum set of insurance benefits, still more fascism. Set up either a public insurance provider, now that would be socialism, or a non-profit cooperative to compete with private insurers, that would be fascism, because both would be, of course, run and controlled by the state. Another one is, make it illegal to deny insurance or charge higher premiums because of medical history or condition. Now, that's pure fascism, and it denies freedom of association. Even if you don't want to do business with somebody, you have to. You know, trim payments to hospitals and other providers under Medicare. Well, hello? This means rationing and reducing service to everybody across the board, and yet they're bringing in... What? What? Somebody want to explain that to me? You know, this is all estimated to cost 1.5 trillion U.S. dollars over 10 years. The hope is that the cost savings in Medicare would counter much of the cost. Uh, that's what the article says. But what's really happening here is that Obama is transferring the out-of-control costs under Medicare over to the private sector, and even that won't save Medicare from continuing spiraling costs. And as always, the words, you know, words like require, like mandate, and make it illegal, those are all euphemisms for the initiation of the use of force by a state against its citizens. And the insistence of health care debaters on each person being forced to carry health care insurance, I mean, that's the hallmark of what I call the wing nuts of both the left and right. You know, force in the name of choice and freedom. And I tell you, the right-wingers are, are doing the same thing. And the problem is with both of these solutions is that government is not the referee when it's running a government health or insurance plan. You got a problem with that plan or the health care system, who are you going to run to? There's no police anymore because the police is the same guy. You know, you've seen those, uh, th- those, those old movies of, you know, these corrupt <laughs> little countries or even communities where the, where the sheriff runs everything, you know. And also just a point, you know, there's a difference between regulation and control. 
Regulation is generally about the regulator's own assets and how they will be dispensed. Control is a prohibition of options for someone else, for the patient, even when the patient's not asking for any help from the person who's being the regulator. And that com you know, com comes back to the basic principle. He who pays the piper calls the tune. It's so simple, and yet seems to be beyond the understanding of the greatest minds in the public arena on this debate. Now we're going to hear from Mr. Obama himself. What is his plan? This is unequivocal. You'll hear it straight out of his mouth. Under the reform we're proposing, insurance companies will be prohibited from denying coverage because of a person's medical history, period. They will not be able to drop your coverage if you get sick. They will not, they will not be able to water down your coverage when you need it. Your health insurance should be there for you when it counts. Not just when you're paying premiums, but when you actually get sick. And it will be when we pass this plan. Now, when we pass health insurance reform, insurance companies will no longer be able to place some arbitrary cap on the amount of coverage you can receive in a given year or a lifetime. And we will place a limit on how much you can be charged for out-of-pocket expenses because no one in America should go broke because they get sick. And, and finally, th this is important. We will require insurance companies to cover routine checkups and preventive care, like mammograms and colonoscopies. Because there's no reason we shouldn't be catching diseases like breast cancer and prostate cancer on the front end. That makes sense. It saves lives. It also saves money. And we need to save money in this healthcare system. So this is what reform is about. For all the chatter and the yelling and the shouting and the noise, what you need to know is this. If you don't have health insurance, you will finally have quality, affordable options once we pass reform. If you do have health insurance, we will make sure that no insurance company or government bureaucrat gets between you and the care that you need. And we will do this without adding to our deficit over the next decade, largely by cutting out the waste and insurance company giveaways in Medicare that aren't making any of our seniors healthier. say, well, how can a private company compete against the government? If you, if you think about it, uh, you know, UPS and FedEx are doing just fine, right? The, the, uh, no, they are. I mean, it's, it's the post office that's always having problems. <laughs> okay, uh, that was close. Except for the part where you on the post office. 
which the government runs. Eh, really not a good lead for government-run health care, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Next time I would try something like, you know, the post office is great, but that doesn't mean there isn't room for FedEx and UPS. Of course, I'm not the most gifted orator of our times. <laughs> this is your concert calendar for Thursday. And welcome back. That was, of course, um, John Stewart uh, coming out of the break there, uh, making an interesting comment too. Not just picking on Obama, saying you know that obvious faux pas, but uh, saying that he should have said the post office is great, which just isn't a fact. <laughs> so you have to make even make a lie out of that if he wants to argue that. Uh, there again, you hear Obama sort of repeating what I said before the break. But what I find interesting is that he did not mention that everyone's going to be forced to have to buy. He put it in this sense of the terms. He said, if you don't have insurance, you now have affordable options. What he didn't say was, which we will force you to buy or else. And, uh, you know, that's just the way it's going to have to work. I don't understand how he can consider it just in any way, shape, or form to prohibit insurance companies from denying, private insurance companies from denying coverage because of a person's medical history. So I find out I'm going to be dead in three months. i got three months left to live. I'm going to go into an insurance company. I'm going to buy myself one huge insurance plan, and they can't refuse me. So for 50 bucks, I'm going to get a million bucks back. What company is going to possibly survive with that kind of a thing? Uh, it's just beyond my belief. And then he says we're going to place a limit on how much you can be charged for out-of-pocket expenses, saying no one in America should go broke because they get sick. What principle is that based on? People go broke because they paid too much for their car, because they overcharged their MasterCard, because they burned the house down, because a million reasons you can go broke, but you can't go broke for the most important thing in your life? Because you're ill, you're not allowed to even spend your own money on the most important thing in your life? It just blows me away. And anyone wants to get into the routine checkups and then covering daily things, which then it's not even insurance anymore, and it's a criminal act. It's fraudulent, utterly fraudulent to call that insurance. Insurance is not there for every expense you have. <laughs> there's no such thing. Who who could make money at that? You know. And then there's uh, then we have Rory Leishman, London Free Press, Swiss system best solution to America's health care woes. He says, and he asks. Why is there so little support for major Medicare reforms in Canada in his August 29th article? Well, I think the real reason is you can't have reform anymore when you're already at your final destination. Free health care services for everybody in Canada. Any reform here in terms of socialism would be a step backwards, wouldn't it? I mean, this is where all the Americans are going to end up in one way, shape, or form, and we're heading their way because this system doesn't work, so we're going back to uh, private-public partnerships. You know, and he argues that some 47 million Americans do not even have basic health insurance, while millions more fear they could also end up with no coverage if they lose their jobs or contract a serious illness, and that is scandalous, writes Leishman. I don't know why that's scandalous. I don't see anything scandalous at all about it. Uh, why didn't they buy the insurance? Some people are rich. They don't need insurance. You know, they could pay for five open-heart operations, and it wouldn't be a half-hour's interest. Why do they need insurance? You know, and then here's the one that kills me. Leishman then points to the left-wing Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman, who speculated that, quote, Obama might endorse the Swiss Medicare system, which relies entirely on private insurance companies to provide affordable care for everyone under government regulation. The Swiss model requires every resident to purchase a basic Medicare policy from one of the several competing private insurance companies. And it goes on explaining exactly the very thing that is what Obama is is proposing. 
And, uh, and, he, and Leishman says, the Swiss model works. It provides the Swiss people with superior Medicare services. Now, Medicare services, not ne- necessary medical services, okay? Um, then I went on, looking at the National Post, and good Lord, there's an article by Paul Krugman himself, the person that, that Rory Leishman just recommended. But what does he say? He says, quote, basically Obamacare is a plan to Swissify America using regulation and subsidies to ensure universal coverage. If we were starting from scratch, he writes, we probably wouldn't have chosen this route. True socialized medicine would undoubtedly cost less, and a straightforward extension of Medicare-type coverage to all Americans would probably be cheaper than a Swiss-style system. <laughs> so he doesn't even agree with what Rory Leishman said he agreed with. And he, you know, he says probably. I mean, I mean, doesn't he know? Doesn't he have any evidence to make such an assertion? He doesn't offer any. But he concludes that that's why I and others believe that a true public option competing with private insurance insurers is extremely important. Otherwise, rising costs could all too easily undermine the whole effort. All that stands in the way of universal health care in America is the greed of the medical industrial complex and the lies of the right-wing propaganda machine. And as soon as I hear that, well, I know that he's talking about himself. And then Linda Van Deuce in London Free Press, August 29th. Uh, <laughs> this is the kicker. In reflecting on Ted Kennedy's recent passing, she uh, took a look at, quote, how health reform's ideological base is doing. And she writes that the scenes from town hall meetings across the U.S. have been dominated by people with firearms, Nazi signs, and other visual magnets, things whose connection to health care is less than obscure, but that associate the issue with emotional negatives of violence and chaos in the key demographics. The pro-reformers who voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama and reform have been more inclined to keep the debate to the issue. Turns out they bought... A deductive, they brought a deductive argument to a gunfight, end quote. Now, after that outrageous analysis, Van Dusen refers to the Washington Post's foreign correspondent, T.R. Reid, in his new book, The Healing of America, A Global Quest for Better, Cheaper, and Fair Health Care. Quote, he, ta- he talked to a packed house about Canada's cultural attachment to universal health care, about how in Switzerland, where there is private but non-profit, now there's something they don't tell you either, eh, that it's, it has to be non-profit, uh, health insurance. If your claim isn't paid in five days, your next month's premium is waived. And how in Japan, they make an MRI machine that costs $75,000 instead of $750,000. People gasped and shook their heads, end quote. Then Van Dusen reflects on how when Ted Kennedy raised his voice and was overcome by passion and compassion, his outrage was something to behold. Maybe the impact of Kennedy's death on the outcome of this fight could somehow combine the enduring echo of his indignation and the practical model of his principled generosity, she concludes, end quote. Now, isn't it interesting how the left uses the words practical and principled in a single sentence, whereas a conservative see practicality and principle as two incompatible things, and there's, there's a key to the whole problem. You talk to conservatives, they'll tell you, oh, you can either be principled or pragmatic, but you can't be both, and that, that's how their misled thinking goes. Because robbing Peter to pay Paul is both the principle and the pragmatic practice of the left. So there's no conflict between the two. They don't believe in private property. They don't believe in consensual trade. They don't believe in any of the principles of free capitalist society. Other than their own personal freedom, everybody believes in that. But they don't believe in freedom for others. Now, conservatives, on the other hand, they talk capitalism. And they practice socialism or fascism. That's what they're always doing. And so that's why people perceive them to be dishonest. 
That's the sense. That's where it comes from. You keep telling me one thing. You say you're a capitalist. You can't even morally defend it. You're always defending it on you know grounds of of altruist goals of of the public good, things which are just fictions, complete fictions. And one thing I've learned is even if you're wrong, being consistent between principle and practice will win any debate over the inconsistency of contradictory principles versus practices. That's why as an ideology, conservatism has been losing the war even when conservatives win elections. The real trick, of course, is not just to be principled, but to be right. And that's it for today's show as we leave you. And we hope that you'll join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Hey, until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and take care. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be all right I actually went for a physical. I had a big full physical, which I'd, I'd never really had. I'd, I'd never had a full physical uh, before, and... Uh, I just never had. I think they give you one when you're like six, when you start school, and then I, I felt fine. <laughs> After that, I was good. But I went to the, had the big checkup, had that, had that done. I've never had that done before, that one. Yeah. I'm sure there's a name for the procedure, but you know what I'm getting at, that turn your head and cough deal? What is that? What is that for? I can't believe I didn't ask.